Well, you remember last week, so this is part two in a three-part series on technology called Living in the Digital Age. And we are, we're living in a digital age. You know, technology, in some ways, it's kind of a misnomer because um, technology has been around for thousands of years, working with tools and axes. Well, that's a certain kind of technology. Agriculture, that's another kind of technology. But nowadays, when we think of technology, we think of digital technology. So we're talking about living in a digital age. Now, depending on how old you are, you feel that sense acutely, especially if you have kids who were born in the last 25 years, or if you were born in the last 25 years. Uh, and the difference primarily is there's not much of a learning curve. And we talked about that last week. So my children, they don't need to be taught how to use electronic devices. The, they, they pick an electronic device up they've never used before, and in moments they've figured the whole thing out. And I've got, you know, something, a tablet for two years, and they go, you know, boom, 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 and I say, you know, I didn't even know it did that. I didn't even know it could do that, you know? They don't need to be taught. And so there's this kind of digital technological intuitiveness, intuition that they have that they've just had from birth because they've grown up in the digital age. I'm looking at you, Colin, right? You've grown up in the digital age. You just know how to use that stuff. So last week we talked about how technology, it's great, and all the cool things it does, and we don't have to convince anyone about how great digital technology is because we all have our smartphones. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put mine on airplane mode. I usually always do that. I didn't do that this morning. And we talked about how technology can deceive us in certain ways. It can make us think we are learning when we're not. Right? Um, uh, it can make us think we are being creative when we're not, when we're really just being productive. And we talked about how learning and creativity is directly connected to our own sense of joy. That part of the way God has made us is to, is to glean joy when we have truly been creative. When we've done things that really flow out of a sense of originality based on who we are individually, uniquely as people... And technology, for all of its blessings and benefits and all the neat stuff it does, it can sometimes throw that off. It can deceive us. And the last point we said last week was that technology can cause us to think we're resting when we're not. We're really just, we have access to leisure all the time with our devices and our computers and our smartphones, but we're not always resting in the biblical sense of Sabbath. And so we want to make sure that we're identifying what's really going on and not mistaking one thing for the other. We're not mistaking pro creativity for productivity or vice versa. We're not mistaking leisure for true biblical Sabbath rest. And we want to make sure that we don't just have information, but we're actually thriving and learning because God has created us in his image to learn through the process of research and discovery and through the acquiring of skills in different areas of our life. And so this morning I want to talk about, so if last week was about how technology affects us personally, I want to talk this week about how digital technology specifically affects how we relate to others. And so I want to talk about three areas that it challenges us. It challenges us in the area of communication, how we communicate with other people. It challenges us in the area of compassion, our ability to really have compassion, and it challenges us in the area of um, 
connectedness, and whether or not we're truly connected to other people. We're digitally connected, but are we really connected to other people? And so let's talk about our first point, communication. Well, we all know that once upon a time, we had um, very limited resources for communicating. So for thousands of years, if you had to communicate, you just talked to people in person, face to face. And uh, in the ancient world, if a general was on a battlefield and needed to get a message back to the king, he would send a messenger or a courier, and sometimes it took weeks or even months for a king a thousand miles away uh, you know, uh, in the kingdom to get an update about how things were going on the battlefield. And more recently, um, you may remember that there were payphone booths. And I grew up with payphone booths, and they were always kind of grimy and gritty and nasty, you know. But, but if you had to make a phone call, you were glad for a payphone booth. You just drove down the street, and, you know, there's one. You pulled over, and you jumped in and hope you had some change. And, you know, halfway through the conversation, the operator would say, you know, please add 10 cents or whatever they said, you know. And you wanted dimes, right? You know, then it got to the point where it was quarters. But, you know, you hoped there was a, a payphone booth close by. And if you're like me, um, I grew up where, you know, we had, well, you know, we had phones. Some of you are a little older. I don't know if they had the kind you pulled off the wall. And, but, you know, we had, we had the kind of phones that we had one phone in the kitchen hanging on the wall with a long spiral cord. So you could walk, you know, you walk around the kitchen and you could do things. And if you're on the phone with your, you know, your girlfriend, you took that phone into the hallway, you know, and... You know, you, you scurried down the hallway, and I would sit on the floor with my feet up on the wall, talking to my girlfriend, who's, she's right over there, so, um, she's not my wife, so all that, those long conversations worked, but, you know, your ear would get red, and then in 2007, the smartphone came out, so that's not when, that's not when cellular phones came out, but the smartphone came out in 2000, and, excuse me, 2007, And it was the same year that social media came out, and that changed, it really changed the world. The access to the smartphone and even social media completely changed the way we communicate. Our communication has been revolutionized by digital technology in a way that nothing that came before it was able to accomplish. And so now we have all of these platforms of communication, We have phone, we have Skype, we have FaceTime, you can send an email, you can text people. There are all these different ways to communicate with people, and we can communicate faster and accomplish much more communication now. One statistic said that 40% of the world's population right now has a smartphone. So there's about 7.2 billion people on the planet, so that's about 2.6 billion people have smartphones. Now, there's only about 300 million people, 310 million people in America. So that means in almost every country in the world, there are people with smartphones. And by the year 2020, that number will go up to about 45%. So there'll be close to 3 billion people. Three out of the 7.5 billion people are connected through smartphones and digital technology. Now, we have more communication, but our communication, because there's more communication going on and there's more people to communicate with, well, guess what happens? The quality of our communication suffers or is broken down into smaller and smaller fragments. Now, you know exactly what I mean, right? You send a text message to somebody, and usually it's pretty brief. If you have to really talk 
you know, you call somebody up, and depending on how old they are, they may or may not answer. That's another problem, right? Um, but our communication is broken down into smaller fragments, and that leads to the potential for miscommunication, right? So you don't have a whole lot of miscommunication when you're standing face-to-face with somebody, but you do have miscommunication at different times, um, especially because it's hard to interpret always what you're reading on a device or from your computer screen, right? There's BTW and LOL and FTW and IMO, right? Those are just those little abbreviations. You know what I'm talking about. Some people are looking at me like, well, what is that? Well, there's the one story of a, a woman who uh, was updating her mother about a friend from college who passed away. And um, mom wrote back and said, I'm so sorry to hear that, LOL. And she said, um, you know, the daughter said, what do you mean, LOL? She said, what do you mean, what do I mean, lots of love? She said, mom, LOL doesn't mean lots of love. And the mom said, you got to be kidding me. I've been telling people for the last year, LOL, you know, every time something bad happens. <laughs> and so it, it gives us, it, it presents an opportunity for miscommunication, right? Sometimes there's miscommunication. We read into a text message something that really isn't there. We fail to truly communicate. We think somebody's being rude, maybe when they're just being succinct. That happens a lot, right? You can, because it's hard to determine inflection and tone and all of those different things. But perhaps the biggest challenge with all of that is nothing can take the place of interpersonal face-to-face communication. And one of the reasons for that is true communication requires understanding someone's tone and inflection and emotion, and that involves listening, and often that's only possible when we're really present with each other. Now, don't hear me demonize communicating through you know, technology or your cell phones or anything like that. There's nothing wrong with it. But the kind of communication, the most important kind of communication that really is required for human beings to understand each other might simply be the old-fashioned way of communicating face-to-face in a way that requires us to be physically present. James 1.19 says, Be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Listening is a huge part of communicating. And it might require us to be present with others to truly take time to listen. So all of the hurried communication is convenient when we're on the go, but it may actually be a disservice when we're trying to build relationships with people and love one another, and really understand each other. Because it doesn't give us the ability the ability to truly listen. The best communication comes from being mentally and emotionally and physically present. And this may be the real issue, because we can actually be physically present and still not be present. We've all seen the picture of a family in the living room in a big circle, and everybody's there, but everybody's like this, right? They're not looking up at each other. And, you know, guilty I'm totally guilty of that. Our youngest daughter, we have four kids, it's our youngest daughter who always calls us out on it. You know, look at you guys. Just look at you guys. You know, we're, oh, I, I was responding to an email, and I always have an excuse. You know, there's always a reason I was doing it. You know, I'm not just cruising the internet. There's a text message or an email or there's something important, but that's almost kind of beside the point. 
So presence itself is the communication of love. Now this may be the big issue here. That loving people, sometimes we can't be present, but when we can be present, we're able to love people in a way that those other venues or avenues of communication doesn't allow us to do. In, Jesus, in, in uh, Matthew 25, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, and he says, I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And it's interesting, because each one of those actions requires physical encouragement and physical presence. Each one of those actions communicate love in a way that is physically present. There's also this other story in Acts 14 where Paul is beaten in Lystra and he's dragged out of the city and he's left for dead. And the disciples come around him and he rises up. It doesn't say it's a miracle, but he survives the stoning. He gets back up and it goes on to say he goes right back into the city and he visits all the disciples and the people of God to encourage them and to tell them that through many trials and sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. He could have just said, boy, that was rough. You know, tell everybody I'm okay. But he marches back into the city to demonstrate physically that he's still with them, enduring with them in their trials and suffering, and that through suffering, we must enter the kingdom of God. That spoke powerfully to me. So the second way that digital technology changes the way we relate to others. So the first is our communication. The second is our ability to show compassion, our compassion for other people. 1 Peter 3.8 says, All of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Compassion for others is a key virtue of Christian unity and love that God wants us to emulate after the pattern of Jesus Christ himself. If there was anything Jesus was, it was compassionate, right? If it was anything he had, it's seemingly above all else, in a way that the religious leaders, the theologically astute leaders of the community didn't have, was this ability to empathize and feel compassion for people. He had mercy on people. Compassion for people that were marginalized and alienated. A technology challenges us in this area simply because we're exposed to so much human suffering all the time in an endless news feed. So you'll notice now, whatever your homepage is, this is actually something that's just developed in the last year. You'll notice whatever your homepage is, whether, whether it's Facebook or Google or whatever it is, that there's news articles. And if you keep scrolling, it's almost always now in endless feed. It doesn't end. It just keeps going. You could literally, in most platforms or most websites, you just keep scrolling. And most of the news, like news, is, isn't great. And so we're exposed to a vast toll of human suffering. And it causes us to kind of break off into one extreme or another. And one is... We feel compassion and we feel terrible about everything because if something horrific happens somewhere in the world, in 10 minutes, it's on your phone. You know, in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. If there was a tornado or a tragedy and 
the other side of the planet, you never knew about it. In fact, it might come to your culture 150, 200 years later. Most people just were not concerned with the suffering and plight of people on the other side of the planet, not because they were cold, but they just weren't made aware of it. And so what happens is we're flooded, we're flooded with all this information, particularly about suffering and evil in our world, and it causes us either, it causes us to be desensitized to where we don't care about any of it, or we care about it in a way that's superficial. You see an article on Facebook, some tragedy, you like it and you hold it down long enough and it gives you an emoji. And by the way, it's not an emoticon. Don't say that anymore. That shows how, that, that dates you. I just, lear- I just learned that this past week. It's not an emoticon, it's an emoji. So you hold, you, know, you hold the like button down, which is ironic, right? You don't want to like a tragedy, but you hold it down long enough and a sad face pops up and then you let go of it and it shows that you were made sad by this event. And there's nothing wrong with that, but what it, what it ends up doing is it makes, you, it makes us feel, it can make us feel like we've actually done something when we haven't. You know, human trafficking, I liked it with a sad face. Next, I did my good deed for the day. And I don't know that that's the kind of demonstration of compassion that Jesus is thinking of, that scripture is thinking of when it requires us and calls us to love one another in a way that has compassion and mercy on others. True compassion comes with a cost. True love comes with a cost. I read a theologian recently in a book who, uh, say that uh, what we need is people who understand the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay it. And the same is true for compassion. We need to understand what the, the cost is for compassion and be willing to pay it. And it means being willing, not always, but being willing to enter into the suffering of others, and you can't do that if you, I hate to say it like this, but if, you, if you're made to care about absolutely everything. I don't know that we're even designed that way. God has designed us to be able to care for people, but a limited group of people. Jesus himself was really only close with three of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John. He himself was limited in his ability to love everyone, and he blessed everyone he came in contact with, but, you know, he poured his life into the life of a few other people. Um, I was reading this week in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the the good Samaritan, and I was struck by the Samaritan's compassion for the person who was wounded and on the road happened in the course of his daily activity. It just happened in the course of his daily activity, which, which is instructive for us because it teaches us that in some real way, God has designed us to show compassion for those we just come in contact with in the daily operation of our lives. It doesn't mean we have to go seeking out hurt and pain everywhere. You know, most of us, we're not super people, super men and super women to be able to do that. But God does want us to demonstrate love and compassion simply in the daily course of events of our lives. 2 Corinthians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father. Let me back up, actually. Romans 12, 15 says, We're to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those who weep. And 2 Corinthians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with comfort, with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by. Trying to understand your own suffering might be helpful to recognize that God is allowing us to experience, and God does allow us to experience hurts and suffering so that we can pour into and encourage others in their suffering and have compassion on others in their trials and in their afflictions. Rejoicing is easy. It's the weeping part that we struggle with. It's easy to rejoice with others, right? We, we enjoy that. Right? Something good happened, high five, awesome. That was awesome, yes. You know, Someone shares good news with you, it's easy to rejoice. It's not so easy to weep with those who weep. That's harder. Because naturally we want to protect ourselves. So maybe if there's a tendency that we have, the tendency is either to care and have compassion superficially or to to not care at all, and it's not because we're callous, but often it's because we want to protect ourselves. I know I do. I know I struggled for years really feeling others' infirmities because it hurts to hurt for other people. And you've got things to do and places to go. You've got to go to work and you've got to take care of your family, and it's hard to feel hurt. It's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to do that. This past week, some of you know, most of you know, there's some visitors here, but um, so struggling with just my own predicament, and um, I don't want to wring my own experience dry and keep mentioning it every sermon, but it has given me some opportunities to reflect the bladder cancer and removal of the tumor, and so ran into, ran into a friend's wife. I was at the library, I walked out, and she was walking up, and we kind of startled each other. And, and I had been, he had been, we had been communicating, and she just broke down weeping, uncontrollable. And I could tell she felt bad, and she just couldn't help herself. So she had heard about the bladder cancer, and she was hurt by it. And when she saw me, she was startled, and she, she couldn't compose herself. And I wrapped my arms around her, and I grabbed her, and I started crying. And I was weeping for her. And I felt so incredibly loved that she was just that vulnerable for me. I felt love. I didn't feel loved by the person who said, it's going to be all right, man. You know, I mean, I did feel loved. Don't get me wrong, but I didn't feel that sense of, sorry for you, for you here who said that to me. <laughs> I did feel loved by you, but what I'm saying is there is a real special way in which those who were willing to weep with me made me feel this sense of, vulnerability on their part, their willingness to be vulnerable. And that made me feel incredibly loved. And it actually has taught me, even while I'm going through this, about loving other people and being willing to enter into their suffering, which is not easy to do because we want to protect ourselves and we don't want to hurt and we don't want to feel pain. So that's how digital technology challenges our ability. We can't care about everything. So I want to tell you this morning, stop feeling guilty about not being able to hurt and feel pain about every tragedy going on in the world. God hasn't created us that way. What he has created us to do is to love and have compassion for those in our own realm of experience and daily operation. A neighbor, a coworker, a family member, someone we run into, who shares a story with us, 
Those are the people we should be seeking to demonstrate great compassion for. And then finally, connection. So the first two points were digital technology challenges our ability to communicate, the way we communicate with others. It, it can be tough showing authentic compassion because we're flooded with so much suffering in the world. And then finally, it should cause us to think about the quality of our connections. And we mention this because we're connected now to so many people. I mean, I don't know about you, but I am connected to thousands of people, I think. At least a couple thousand. You know, when Facebook first came out in 2007, I saw people who had like, you know, 500 friends, and I just thought, oh, man, that's a goal. And it's just friend, friend, friend. You know, and then someone friends me. And Maribel would never, never experienced that. You know, she had this long list of people waiting in the friend request queue, and I was just like, you know, they're going to think you don't like them. She's like, you know. And I, you know, I was like, you know, yeah, accept, 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 accept. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm connected to all, you know, and a lot of us are that way. You're connected to all these people, but the quality of those connections are some of those people you don't even know. And sometimes we can be fooled into thinking, fooled into thinking that we've got, we have all these connections, we have all these relationships, but we're still lonely. So this is, there's a lot of data coming back right now on how digital technology and our devices are, are, are creating, instead of creating happiness, you'd think we'd be happier, right? We have all these connections or all these people we're talking to. The rates of depression right now, especially among connected people, they're going right through the roof, especially among teenagers. I mean, nowadays, so there's, a, there's an article, I think, on The Atlantic. It's called 12 Ways Your Smartphone is Changing You. 12 ways your smartphone is changing you, or it's 12 ways it's changing our kids, something like that. And kids now, teenagers, can spend the whole summer in their bedroom because they're just connected to friends, and they don't want to go out. And so the positive aspect is there's less drinking, there's less um, uh, you know, teen pregnancy, and those are, those are good things. We're, kind of, we're glad for that. But at the same time, this kind of pseudo-connectivity that they're experiencing is not a full-orbed connection. It's not a full-orbed friendship. You can laugh with people over a Snapchat or over a text message or over a shared video, and that's okay, but what's happening is it's not, it's not the full gamut of experience of human relationship, and that causes us to be lonely. But we're not really sure how it's happening. So we still feel the sense of loneliness. We have greater connectivity but we're not really connected to people because it's mediated through this portal, you know, or this portal. It's not real connection in, in, the, in the most significant way that we're meant to connect with people. And so the depression rates are through the roof. They actually said that the suicide rate among teenage girls right now is 59%, which is the highest on record it's ever been. The suicide rate among teenage girls, 59% right now. Um, excuse me, the depression rate. That would be astronomical. The depression rate. Excuse me. Thank you. I, I thought to myself, that's crazy. <laughs> the depression rate of girls who are on their devices all the time. All right? A little comic relief for us this morning. Um, 
So we're fooled into thinking that we're having the kinds of connections that are deeply meaningful, when in reality, they're not as meaningful as we would like them to be. Again, I want to say I'm not a Luddite here. I'm not poo-pooing technology, technology bad, you know, non-technology good. Technology is great, and we can do a lot of good things with it. We can share the gospel. We can connect with people. We can stay abreast of issues. We can, we can get more work done. We can do a lot with it, but it also can isolate us. So it's not one or the other. It's both things are true. Digital technology is good. It's a blessing, and at the same time, it can isolate us, and this is maybe the most important point of all, is digital technology can make us be anonymous. It dehumanizes each other at times and depersonalizes relationships, and it seems to encourage anonymity, where we're just anonymous people. And we're not really connected with each other. I grew up in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a massive city of 7 million people in the city itself and in the surrounding county. There's a total of 13 to 15 million people. And one of the things I observed when I was growing up is in the areas of the city where the population was densest, people were often the cruelest. High crime rates. But if you could get those people in a backyard over a barbecue, they were great. And I remember, being, I remember struggling through this for years, wondering why there was this disconnection. Why on the freeway they would yell and curse at you, but if you, if you ran into them you know, at, at a backyard barbecue and, and they were, it was a chill environment, people were really great. And I started to think that it's the anonymity factor. When we're not allowed to truly connect with each other because there's so many people, we're crueler to each other. And that's what technology kind of does. It creates a cruelty where we say things to people that we wouldn't normally say. We treat people in ways we wouldn't normally treat them in ways we wouldn't normally treat them because, well, there's this anonymity factor. You're hiding behind a screen name or someone's hiding behind an avatar. And they can say anything and do anything, and they do. The Internet's great, but there's also, this, there's also a lot of darkness on the Internet. So it causes us at times to behave in ways that are completely different to others than we would in a face-to-face conversation. Anonymity of the internet and of digital technology can foster dehumanization and depersonalization, and it results in cruelty. Now Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm going to wrap up here, but in our final scripture, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are experiencing the trials of persecution in the first century as they met together regularly. And it was often hard for them for their meetings not to be public because they would come together in numbers and people would see them either at houses or different functions that they would have and they were tempted to withdraw. Here's the key for us. They were tempted to withdraw because of trials and because of persecution, but it's a natural emotion that we all have to fight. 
we all have to fight this kind of natural inclination to withdraw from other people, even our brothers and sisters. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do it. Don't withdraw. Don't stay in your private little quarters, connecting with people only from behind of a screen. Come out and come together. Encourage one another. Spur one on another, uh, each other to love. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And don't neglect coming together and meeting, as the habit of some people is. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of judgment drawing near. Look, our, our gathering even this morning is one way we fight against that tendency to withdraw. But there are other things we do. We have connect groups, and not just that. We connect with other people. And some of you may think, you know, this is all much ado about nothing. I leave the house, I go to the store. You know, I see people all the time. You know, I connect with people all day long. That's good. But slowly, and this is how, this is how things happen, the slow erosion of the value of human relationships and community, which God has created us for, is the biggest threat we face right now. Your being here this morning, your pressing past that desire, that intuition to withdraw, is incredibly countercultural, and God demands it. He wants us to come together, and He wants to shine His glory on us in the way we love each other, in the way we connect with each other and have compassion with each other, the kindness with which we communicate with one another. All of these things done for God's glory shine the glory of God and radiate it back out to the world. That's what God wants from us. God wants true community to shine in his people, true relationships and mutual love to radiate in the darkness of our culture's anonymity and disconnectedness. Let's pray.